If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27, our sermon text this morning is Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be some Bibles on the back table. You should feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't own a Bible, you should feel free not only to grab it for right now, but you should uh, take it home with you, write your name in the front, keep it, uh, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Matthew 27, verses 45 to 54. Pray together before we read. Father, we, we do beseech you to hear us. We pray that you would hear our prayers, that we, you would hear our prayers for your work around the world, missionaries in Berlin and in South Asia. We pray that you would hear our prayers for the people of Paris. Father, we pray that you would hear our prayers now as we pray that you would come and meet with us as we open your word, that you would open our hearts and open our minds by your Holy Spirit, that we would understand, that we would believe, that we would be changed as we see Jesus in the scriptures, that we would meet with you and that we would leave this place a different people than when we walked in because of the work of your Holy Spirit applying your word to our hearts. Come and meet with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders Hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Well, there is little better than the feeling of being accepted, to be welcomed in, to, to know that you belong, uh, to feel at home, in a place, among a people, to know that you are loved and delighted in. Of course, the opposite of being accepted is to be abandoned, to be shunned, to be rejected to be left alone. To be truly alone in life, of course, is not simply to be physically alone. We all need to be alone sometimes. But to be truly alone is to have no one to turn to, no one to confide in, 
uh, no shoulder to cry on, as we say. It's to be abandoned. But of course, the human condition was never meant to be a solitary condition. Uh, it was meant to be relational. It was meant to be communal. The human condition was meant to be a reflection of the Trinity. Jesus lived in communion with his Father, in a relationship with his Father from all of eternity in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In the Gospel of John, Jesus prays at one point, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. See, the, the pre-incarnate Christ, that is the Son of God, before he took on humanity, existed with the Father in glory. Jesus enjoyed the, the greatness of the Father from eternity, and the Father delighted in the Son from eternity. That is life as it was meant to be. The Father and Son delighting in one another. Uh, John 1 uh, puts it like this. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. See, the Son of God was with God. That's life, communion with the Father forever. That's not, however, life as we always experience it to be. And I wonder uh, where you are in life, whether you feel abandoned or accepted, rejected or loved. Do you enjoy relationships with the people around you? Do you have sort of deep fellowship with others, friends you can turn to, people you can rely on, who know you and who you know accept you and receive you into fellowship? I have a good friend who often says that once we leave college, we kind of lose the ability to make friends. Uh, we forget how to forge deep relationships. And we get too busy to welcome people into our lives. What about with God? Do you feel abandoned by Him? Or do you enjoy acceptance with Him? Do you know communion with God? Do you, do you know what it means to have a deep, meaningful fellowship with your Father in heaven. Well, our passage this morning is about Jesus being abandoned on the cross that we might be accepted in commun into communion with the Father. And that acceptance, of course, has profound implications for our lives. So we're going to look this morning at uh, this text. You can see the outline on the back of your bulletin. We're going to look at four things, resting in the cry, living in communion, hoping in the consummation, and witnessing in community. First, we'll talk about resting in the cry. Well, we come this morning uh, to a passage in Scripture where Jesus is on the cross. He has been mocked because the people say he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the suffering Messiah who conquers his enemies by his own death. Something which the people of his day and people of every day have a hard time understanding. And then there is the darkness. Like the creation itself being undone, darkness is a sign of judgment. Like the three-day darkness in the book of Exodus, or like the, the, the fifth bowl of judgment in the book of Revelation, which plunges Satan's kingdom into darkness. 
Darkness is a sign of judgment. Jesus even spoke of God's enemies as being cast out into outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Bible says that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. To be in darkness then, in Exodus, in Revelation, in, uh, for Jesus, is to be separated from God and to know it and to despair. Hence, when Jesus talks about the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Well, darkness comes over the land as Jesus is on the cross for three hours from noon until three. And this is no natural darkness. Uh, this, is, this is no eclipse. This is a supernatural darkness of God's judgment just fallen upon his enemies. Except it wasn't his enemies. It was his son. And after three hours of darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why had the Father turned the darkness of judgment upon his Son? Why had the Father turned the light of his countenance away from his beloved? Why did the Father abandon, forsake the one who from all eternity he had enjoyed and loved? Well, the bystanders don't know. They uh, think that Jesus is calling for Elijah. You may know that uh, Elijah uh, in the Bible, he, he didn't die. Uh, he was transported directly to heaven in a whirlwind in the book of 2 Kings. And maybe the, the people standing there thought that Elijah would hear Jesus and might even come and save him from the cross. And so someone moves to offer Jesus some wine, possibly to relieve his suffering. Uh, well, if Elijah is going to come and save this man, you want to be on the side with Elijah, right? So uh, other people say, no, no, let's just wait and see what happens. And Jesus cries out again with a loud voice, and he gives up his spirit. He cries out again with a loud voice and gives up his spirit. Jesus' life isn't taken from him, even at the end. He doesn't go out with a whimper, but a shout. And then he gives up his spirit. No one takes it from him. He gives it up, having completed his work. But we're still left with the question of, of why. Why does the Father forsake the Son? And some people have been really troubled by this. Uh, it almost seems inappropriate, right, for Jesus to talk like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, God doesn't abandon his people, right? I've actually heard people say that, that this was the one time that Jesus sinned. He wasn't trusting his father. Some people say that Jesus was simply quoting Psalm 22, which he, it is a quote from Psalm 22, uh, they're, they're saying Jesus is trying to get us to think of the whole picture. He didn't actually think God had forsaken him. He's just quoting the verse for us. Of course, all of these attempts to justify God completely miss the point. The father forsook his son. The father had to forsake his son. You remember way back when Adam sinned in the garden, God exiled Adam from his home. He cast him out of the garden. Adam could no longer dwell in God's presence. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, but death is, is not merely the, the cessation of physical processes. Right? Death 
means alienation from God. It means enmity and distance and abandonment. So Adam is cast out of the garden. God's judgment upon sin is abandonment. When humanity rejects God, God leaves them to their own devices. When humanity turns away from God, God turns away from them. We are our sinners. We're sinful people. Uh, in, according to the scriptures, we deserve to be forsaken by God. But the Bible teaches that the one who knew no sin, Jesus, was made sin for us. That Jesus became a curse. That God, out of his great love for sinful people, sent Jesus into the world to take our place, to become sin to be forsaken for you and for me, to be forsaken so we don't have to be, to be forsaken so that we might be accepted. Have you ever felt that your sin, your guilt, your shame was so great that there's no way God could ever accept you? Or maybe you've never thought about it in terms of God. Maybe you just feel this sense of, of unworthiness when you're around people. And you worry that if people really knew you, they, would, they wouldn't accept you, right? That, that you would be rejected, abandoned, and alone. If people really knew what was going on in your heart and in your mind. You know, on the one level, the, the Bible affirms those feelings. I know that's not what you wanted to hear, but, but really that the Bible affirms that sin brings guilt and sin brings shame and and not just the feelings of guilt and shame even, but the objective reality of guilt and shame. On one level, we deserve, the Bible teaches, to be abandoned and rejected by God. But God loves us. God loved us and sent Jesus to be abandoned in our place. Jesus was rejected so that we can be accepted and when you feel guilt and shame, when you feel like, I don't fit in, I don't belong, when you feel on the outside like no one could love you, neither God nor man, you don't need to despair because Jesus has taken that upon himself. He took our guilt. He took our shame. He was rejected by the Father. Jesus was abandoned so that, therefore, you can be accepted. That's what the three dots in the sermon title mean. I don't know if you read the sermon title. Uh, they're, they're the symbol for therefore. The sermon title reads, Abandoned, therefore accepted. Jesus was abandoned, therefore we can be accepted. And this has profound implications for the Christian life. Your acceptance with the Father doesn't depend upon what you do or what you have done. It depends on what Jesus has done. God doesn't accept us because we clean ourselves up. He accepts us because our dirt has been dealt with in the cross. Stop trying to earn God's acceptance through your efforts. Stop trying to, to be religious or to be moral or to reform your life so that God will love you. But rest in the cry of Jesus. Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we might never have to utter those words. 
We can rest in that cry. We can rest in his rejection because that is your acceptance. And when that begins to happen, when we really begin to rest in his work, to know the acceptance of our Father through his Son, you will find that the acceptance or the rejection of people begins to lose its power in your life. The more you know the acceptance of your Father, the more you'll stop living for the acceptance of men. That's why we need to hear the gospel again and again. It's at least one of the reasons, right? Because so many of us fear men. We fear the people around us. We, we want to be accepted by them. And we need to keep being reminded that our Father has accepted us in His Son. Our Father loves us in His Son. Our Father delights in us in His Son. I don't need to be controlled by what other people think. I can live in the joy of the love of my Father. I can rest in His cry. Well, the text goes on and it brings us to the second point about living in communion. At the moment of Jesus' death, we're told in verse 51 that behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I said a moment ago that uh, God cast Adam and Eve out of the garden because of human sin. The way into God's presence had been barred, blocked. But God did not abandon humanity. Eventually, God set up a tabernacle and later a temple. And God's name dwelt in the tabernacle. Symbolically, God dwelt in the, what was called the most holy place. He was enthroned above the ark, the psalm tells us. And so God dwelt in Israel's midst, in the tabernacle, in the temple. And yet Israel, if you're a common Israelite, you had to stay outside. You had to stay in what was called the outer court. Only the priests could come into the holy place. That was the place of their daily communion with God. The priests went daily behind the curtain into the holy place, into God's presence. In the holy place, there was a table with bread and wine, a lamp to light their way, an altar of incense symbolizing the prayers of God's people. Yet the altar of incense was in front of a second curtain, which separated the holy place from what was called the most holy place, the dwelling place of God, where the Ark of the Covenant was. And while only the high priest went into the most holy place once a year, every day the priests would come into the holy place and commune with God by eating of drink offerings and food offerings, by offering incense before the curtain. And so if you can picture this for me, there are three areas in the Old Testament temple. I know this seems obscure. Why is he talking about the temple? But there are three areas in the temple. Bear with me. And uh, there are two curtains. So you have this outer court. All the Israelites are allowed in this outer court. But the priests enter daily through the first curtain into the holy place. But the high priest enters once a year through the second curtain into the most holy place where God was said to dwell above the cherubim. So the question is, when we get to Matthew 27, verse 51, and it says, Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The question is, which curtain is torn in two from top to bottom? And what does that mean? 
Uh, why was this curtain torn in two from top to bottom? Uh, maybe you've never thought about this before. Maybe uh, you think that this is kind of an odd, obscure question, but I actually think it's really important, and I actually think that it could alter the way you think about the Christian life. Maybe that's going a bit far, but it might. Which curtain was torn in two? If you read commentaries, they're actually all divided. Some people say it was the one. Some people say it was the other. Uh, I think it was the first curtain. Uh, The curtain that separated the people from the holy place. Why? Well, because the holy place is the place of daily communion with God. For the priests, every day, going into the holy place, communing with God. According to the New Testament, God's people, the church, you and I, are a kingdom of priests. Jesus is the high priest. We are each priests before our God. That, by the way, is why I am not called a priest. (laughs) Because I'm not any more of a priest than you are, and not any less of a priest than you are. All Christians are priests of God, according to the Bible. Once we were rejected, Adam was cast out of the garden. The Israelites had to stay out in the courtyard. But we are now welcomed into the holy place, the place of fellowship, the place of bread and wine, the place of prayer offered up as a fragrant offering, the place where we are transformed by the presence of the Holy Spirit to become the light of the world that Jesus said we are. Now you might ask, okay, but but why wasn't the inner curtain torn? I mean, are we still separated from God in some way? Does God still hold us at arm's length? We're allowed into one room, so to speak. What about the other room? Well, here's what I think. Um, You can test it from what the scriptures say and, and decide for yourself. But the book of Hebrews says that the first section, the holy place, is symbolic for this present age. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9. What then is the second section symbolic of? The age to come. The consummation, right? The new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell immediately in the presence of our Father. So the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place remains as long as heaven and earth are separate, distinct, experiential realities. We fellowship with God now through bread and wine, through prayer, through the personal presence of the Holy Spirit. But only at the new creation will we fellowship with him face to face. Yes, that curtain remains, not because God is holding us at arm's length, but because the consummation of the ages has not yet come. Okay, so what does it look like then to live in this holy place as his people? What does it mean to be priests who enter in and commune with God in the present age? Well, you have three things going on in that holy place. You have the lamp stand, which was a symbol of God's spirit empowering the church. You see that in places like Zechariah 4 and Revelation 1 and 4. The lamp stands themselves are the church and the the fire or the light is the spirit. We commune with God by the spirit whom Jesus poured out on the church at Pentecost, who lives in each person who trusts in Jesus. To commune with God also means to partake of the Lord's Supper, to eat and drink the symbols of Christ's sacrifice in table fellowship with our Father, as the priests enjoyed bread and wine on the table of showbread. 
To commune with God means to offer up our prayers to our Father. It's, it's interesting that in the holy place, the altar of incense was the closest piece of furniture to the most holy place. In fact, the book of Hebrews says that the altar of incense belongs to the most holy place. So prayer, then, is our present access to our Father. It's our way into the most holy place, so to speak, because by prayer, God smells the sweet aroma of our devotion. And somehow through prayer, it is as if we ascend into our Father's very presence. Jesus was abandoned, therefore, you are accepted. As a result, God welcomes you into his living room. He provides the meal, he provides the light, and he asks you to bring the conversation so that we live our lives in God's welcoming presence until our life is seen as a daily back and forth interaction with our Father, living before him moment by moment. Jesus was abandoned, therefore you are accepted and welcomed into the Father's presence through faith in him. Point three, hoping in the consummation. Uh, the passage doesn't end here, of course. Things only get weirder. Second half of verse 51 says, And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The death of Jesus is, is literally an, an earth-shaking event. As with the darkness, right, earthquakes and splitting rocks are frequently signs of God's judgment throughout the Bible. God had brought the rod of his justice down on his son. But earthquakes are also a sign of God's overturning of world orders. And a world, the world had radically and permanently changed in that moment that Jesus died. Verse 52 picks up and it says, The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Apparently, at the moment of Christ's death, certain tombs broke open. That's not really surprising since tombs uh, were above ground in those days. They were in caves. Normally, there was a, a, uh, they were covered by large, round rocks that were rolled into place. So if you have an earthquake, right, it might not be surprising if a rock rolls out of place or moves out of place. If it, there was an earthquake, many tombs would be disturbed. But the surprising part is that many of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and there are so many questions that aren't answered here. It's frustrating a little bit, right? Which saints were raised? How many saints were raised? How long had they been dead? How long did they then live? Did they later die a normal death again? Or were they later taken up into heaven like Enoch and Elijah and Jesus after the resurrection? When were they raised? At the moment of Jesus' death or at Jesus' resurrection? All of those questions and more are not answered. <laughs> But the point is clear. Jesus' death changed reality as we know it. A new order of life had begun. The age of the resurrection had begun. And God's people need no longer fear death. Rather, we hope in the coming resurrection. Death for the Christian is the mere sleep of the body to be awakened from at Jesus' return. Jesus was abandoned so that we might be accepted, and acceptance with God means life. Paul talks about our coming resurrection in terms of our adoption as God's children. Again, terms of acceptance, terms of intimacy and communion, adoption, right? 
In Romans 8, Paul says that the whole creation waits for the revealing of the sons of God. And he even goes so far as to say that we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. See, when will we know the height of intimacy with our Father? Not until the resurrection. We have been reconciled to our Father, therefore we have life, but we await the fullness of that. Again, Paul says in that passage in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We await the resurrection. We hope in the resurrection. We had a little foretaste of that at the death of Jesus when people literally got out of the graves. But one day at Jesus' return, all of us will literally get out of our graves when we see him face to face. Jesus was abandoned, forsaken for our sin. We can rest in his cry. We can live now in communion with our Father. We can hope in the coming consummation and the resurrection of the dead. And the last point is we can witness in community. I, I want to make really two points here, a point out of part of the text and then a larger point applying kind of the whole text to our witness as a church. The point out of the text comes from verse 54. Verse 54 says uh, this, When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The centurion and those who were with him, right, this group of people sees the earthquake and what took place, which is kind of an interesting statement. Well, what is it? What else took place? What do they see? They see the darkness. Uh, they see the cry of rejection. They, they see the death of Jesus itself. Whatever it is they see, they're filled with awe, wonder, amazement at what happened. And they said, we're told, they said, truly, this is the Son of God. Their immediate reaction to Jesus' death is both wonder and confession, worship and proclamation. Right? They're in awe and they proclaim Jesus is the Son of God. That's what Jesus' work should do to us, should do in us. It should fill us with awe and it should provoke us to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. But I want to connect that to sort of the larger passage and what's going on in the larger passage. And um, there are three things about our witness from this idea that we've been accepted into God's presence as priests in the holy place. Three things that I want to draw from that about our, our witness. One is that we are made priests of God to proclaim. The second is we're invited into God's light to be a light. And the third is that we demonstrate our acceptance with God through our acceptance, our accepting one another in Christ. So the, the first one, First Peter, the book of First Peter says that we are being built into a spiritual house, which there actually the word house means dynasty. Uh, we are being built into a spiritual house. When we become Christians, we become a part of a, of a priestly dynasty. We become this spiritual house, this holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. What does that mean? Well, Peter goes on to say that we proclaim God's greatness, we fight against sinful desires, so that people see our good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. See, we're made priests, according to Peter, to do priestly work, to proclaim God's greatness in worship and in witness, in word and in deed, so that the world 
would glorify our Father at his return. Or there's another way of putting that. We are invited into God's light to become the light of the world. So the the holy place was a place illumined by the lampstand. The lights, again, being symbolic of the presence of the Spirit. The lamp is, is a picture of the church empowered by the Spirit. You see that, again, in Revelation 1, Revelation 4. The Spirit uses the light of the Word, of course, to make us the light of the world. That was the title Jesus gave his people. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Language echoing, again, First uh, Peter. And so we're priests. We're called to proclaim the greatness of God. We're invited into the light of God's presence, indwelled by God's presence, by the person of the Holy Spirit, so that we might be a light to the world. Finally, we bear, bear witness to our acceptance with God through our acceptance of one another. We have been accepted by God in Christ. We're called to show that same acceptance to those around us. Scripture says things like this. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Show hospitality to one another. And we're to do these things without regard to differences in the church, right? So in the church, we're told there's no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, there is no circumcision or or uncircumcision. They count for nothing but only faith working through love. So we're not to judge one another based on these worldly characteristics, but we're to accept one another regardless of differences in background, nationality, skin color, gender, social status, right? And it is this very acceptance of one another that bears witness to our acceptance in Christ. See, we need to cultivate community to become a community that reflects God's acceptance of us. God has taken us as his children, which makes us brothers and sisters. And to cultivate those horizontal relationships demonstrates the vertical, To ignore the horizontal denies the vertical. Uh, Jesus put it this way. He put it a lot more simply than I'm putting it. He said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Where does our witness as a church begin? It begins right here. Look at the people around you, next to you, in front of you, behind you. If you do not love them, according to Jesus, right, you will not bear witness to the love of Christ. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are a priesthood, not isolated priests. Each church in the book of Revelation is represented by a single lampstand. We're not isolated little lamps for Jesus. God's acceptance of us, our fellowship with him, are demonstrated in our acceptance of one another and the community that results. Welcome one another, Paul says, as God in Christ has welcomed you. Let's pray. Our Father, we marvel that you would send your Son into the world to bear sin in such a way that he would be forsaken at the cross, that you would turn your back on your son, that you would cover him in darkness,
that you would turn your face away from him. Father, we thank you that in his rejection, we find our acceptance. Father, we pray that you would so work that deeply into our hearts that it would radically change the way we live, the way we think about what we do, the way we think about the people around us, the way we think about your church. We thank you, Father, that we have been accepted through your Son, Jesus, that we are invited into communion, communion with you by your Holy Spirit, and that we have the hope of one day dwelling in your presence, and seeing you face to face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.